There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, episode 55. Now, in recent times, the markets have been extremely volatile. I've discussed volatility versus risk in episode 48, and why understanding volatility especially can be beneficial in order to reduce risk in the long term. Now, when you look at the media and pay a little bit of attention to it, you say uh, you see people are predicting a global recession within the next 24 months. Now, why is that? Well, I thought it would be good to understand why the GFC 2008 happened and some of the learning points and key indicators of that recession, which many economists actually missed. Hindsight is always 2020, but is there something we can learn from that recession and apply the principles of those learnings to our own personal finances? Let's see. Now, before we dive into the GFC topic, for those of you new to this podcast channel, and I'm constantly seeing new listeners, new subscribers every day, so thank you very much for the messages of support and feedback. My podcast channel is all about empowering people with the knowledge about personal finance topics. I'm not a financial advisor, nor do I claim to be. So if you really need proper financial advice, then I would suggest you go speak to your accountant or your lawyer or your personal financial advisor, of course, to look at your personal finances so something can be tailored to your personal situation. So please take these concepts with a grain of salt. I'm not a registered financial advisor. Now, in my podcast channel, the basic premise and the basic principle steps are as follows. There are five easy steps in my view to build wealth, and hopefully with that wealth, you can do good for your life and also the people around you. Step one, pay yourself first, try and save at least 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. Step number two, save it and invest it, hopefully in low-cost investments like ETFs or index funds so that fees don't become a big killer and take a significant portion of your growth and capital appreciation of those investments that you have. Point number three, always reinvest dividends. Never cash them out, particularly when you don't need them, and try and reinvest the dividends in those investments that you have and do it for the long term. Point number four, What does long-term mean? In my view, long-term is at least 20, 30, 40. Or if so, if you start really early, even 50 years of your life, you'd be amazed how much compounding happens in that period of time. And point number five is always try and automate the process. You find that if you automate the process, the chances of you making a mistake, the chances of you forgetting to invest, and the chances of you spending that 20% money that you've so generously saved over those years is going to be extremely low. Now, if you did this, five steps, in my view, you're likely to end up with more wealth than you could have ever imagined to have. And with that comes responsibility, of course, and the opportunity to better your life and also the people around you. Now, before we go on to the main topic of the GFC, I had a question uh, recently about what do we do with the 20% save your, uh, pay yourself money if we have consumer debts? Now, If you have non-mortgage debt, 
consumer debts, personal loans, credit cards, car loans. I really hope you don't. But unfortunately, if you do have that, it makes no sense to take 20% of your after-tax income and investing it because your long-term investment, you're probably going to get about sort of 6 to 8% in the long term. But if you've got a consumer debt that's draining 16 17% in interest rates per year, then you're actually losing money. So if you've got consumer debts at significantly high interest rates, you know, save your $1,000 emergency fund and work very, very hard to pay off those consumer debts because essentially, if you have a 15% interest rate on a car loan, then you're wasting 15% uh, and putting it into the bin. And to achieve a 15% return in the market is going to be very difficult in the long term consistently. So make sure you pay off your consumer debts first. Once you've done that, you've accumulated some emergency funds of three to six months, then pay yourself the 20% money, then invest that 20% after-tax money for the long term. Hopefully that clarifies it, okay? There's no point investing for a 6 to 8% return when you've got consumer debts draining a 12, 13, 14, 15% per annum of interest, okay? Now to the main topic, what caused the GFC? How did it unfold and what has been the response? And where are we at in 2019? I'll try and put a Australian context to this question. So let's dive deeper into these subtopics to learn about it and how to protect ourselves from another disaster. So what caused the global financial crisis? There are three key reasons why the GFC happened. Number one, when the economy was booming, there was excessive risk-taking by mainly American banks, which spread across the whole world. Point number two, banks just borrowed more money and investors did the same and the investors were the ones buying the mortgages from the banks and the investors were also the other banks. So banks were investing, you know, on each other and of course some of that spread outside of America where overseas banks and financial institutions got into this bad practice of borrowing more money. Point number three, and of course, there was lack of regulation. Deregulation played a big role. Now, President George Bush II deregulated the economy significantly. The economy did really well, but of course, when you don't have regulations, you have unscrupulous practices which then affect the end user. And the end user is the citizen, the person that is, you know, going to work every day, trying to make a living, trying to buy a house, trying to buy a car, trying to feed the family. It's those people that really got screwed over in America. And some of it did spill over into other European economies. Now, point number one, good macroeconomic environment led to excessive risk taking by American banks. Now, what does that mean? It means that after the tech bubble in the year 2000, the American economy and most of the global economy had a number of successive years of rising economic conditions. Economic growth was strong, stable, and rates of inflation was extremely low. And unemployment was very, very low because businesses were booming, they were employing more people, spending money on their businesses, hiring more people, etc., and the cycle just continued. In Australia, this was John Howard, one of our longest-serving PMs ever, he was his time to shine. Australia rode the mining boom during this time, particularly between 2000 and 2008, 2009. So in this environment, house prices grew both in the US and even in Australia. Think about the median house price in Australia in the 90s. Things just skyrocketed in the 2000s. And really in Australia, have only recently eased by about 10%. 
until now. The house price growth has been extremely tremendous, at one stage hitting the million-dollar median mark for Sydney and up to $900,000 in median house prices in Melbourne. So we've just ridden an extremely high housing boom in Australia. And that all started way back in the 2000s with the mining boom, the economic uh, doing very, very well, particularly in Australia. And of course, the house prices started going up as well. So that happened in the US as well, right? So when house prices rose like crazy in the US, people wanted in on the action. They wanted to ride the economic wave too, because it was the American dream to own a home, right? It's also the Australian dream to own a home, of course. And this led to people borrowing money to buy homes because they thought house prices will continue to rise forever. So individuals and families applied for a record number of home loans, which were getting approved left, right and centre. This is stage one of the disaster. So let's recap. You've got a great economy. People are spending money like water. They've got money to burn. They've got employment. And therefore, as a result, they want to go and spend more money. People wanted to buy homes. And of course, this is stage one. People were just applying for home loans left, right and center. Okay. Now, the property developers were looking at this and they also wanted in on the action because they wanted to develop sites. Of course, when they develop sites, they put those properties up for sale, which means more people apply for mortgages and more people buy homes. And you can see how the cycle can get out of hand pretty quickly. So for this, for them to be able to develop sites, to be able to build up sites and sell land and houses, they needed money. So guess what they did? They also borrowed money from the banks. So not only did the individual borrow money from the banks to buy these homes, the developers also did the same thing. And this also happened indiscriminately in countries like Iceland, Ireland, Spain and other European countries, and they too borrowed excessively. That was stage two of the disaster. So basically demand was high, so you go and borrow some money, you leverage yourself, and therefore with that money, with the hope of investing, you leverage yourself to try and come out on top in the long term. So then the people and the companies that were borrowing the money were the average employees and businesses, and the significant portion of them had minimal income and wanted to borrow, flip or renovate the homes and then sell them for a profit. Why not? Everyone was doing it. It was easy. People made loads of money. So everyone wanted in on the action. Therefore, these type of mortgages with people that have minimal income in the US were called subprime mortgages. You might have heard of this term, subprime mortgages. So the borrowers had a higher risk of defaulting on the loan, mainly because their income and wealth were relatively low when compared to the borrowed amounts. So lending became a little bit lax and people that had relatively little wealth and unproven income or even little income were able to go and borrow money to buy homes that potentially that they couldn't afford Businesses that didn't have great credit scores went and borrowed money to develop sites to then offsell those properties and lands to other individuals. You can see how this is now getting a bit interlinked. The businesses are starting to get interlinked with the individuals, which are then linked to the bank. Okay, so this was great for business because money was just flowing. Where's all this money coming from? Banks were just lending money left, right and centre. So the subprime mortgages started rising. Guess what the banks did? Great, they lent the money. No questions asked. So more banks decided to take the risk 
and do more subprime mortgages. This meant mortgage lending was a competitive business as customers had plenty of options. So if they went to Bank A and they didn't lend the money, they'd go to Bank B. If Bank B didn't lend the money, they'd go to Bank C. So all the other banks were looking at this and going, well, I'm going to miss out on a huge profit margin here. I need to get more customers. And therefore, they started loosening their lending criteria and started lending money. So due to competition, individual lenders extended their lending to bigger and bigger home loans to compete, which was great because the economy was great and it seems like everyone had very easy, profitable outcome as a result of buying homes and flipping them and selling them, etc. Because the house prices are always going to go up. Now here's where things started falling apart. These banks didn't fully assess the people's status before lending the money. They lent it indiscriminately. They also assumed it doesn't really matter because if the borrower couldn't pay the home loan back because house prices will increase forever so they could just repossess the home and sell it for a profit. So who cares? Here's the key. Lenders did not expect to bear any of the losses, so they cared so little. Here is where things get a bit tricky. What banks actually did was package up those mortgages, which were given to people who probably couldn't afford them in the first place, then called it a mortgage brack backed security, i.e. a security which is tradable, which is backed by a number of assets, which are essentially homes, then sold these mortgage-backed securities to investors. Now, who are these investors? These investors would be other banks, institutional investors, hedge fund managers, hedge funds, some of the investors would be mom and dad investors, of course, you or me, through index funds and other mutual funds, okay? So essentially, the banks packaged up these mortgages and sold it to investors as something called mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, um, which makes the banks the kind of the middleman. So in other words, if you're an individual, you apply for a home loan to a bank, you get the home loan and the bank lends you the money, then, of course, the bank has a thousand of these such mortgages that are lending to a thousand different people. They just package it up and make it into this financial instrument called a mortgage-backed security, which means the security is now backed by the homes, a thousand homes that these people apparently own because they're paying repayments. And investors see that and go, I'm getting interest rate on these mortgage-backed securities, so therefore I'm going to invest in that. And you can see how this kind of becomes cloudy. Your mortgage kind of gets translated into this other financial product, which is now not really a mortgage. So this kind of happens quite frequently in the financial world. Now, in terms of a bank, they can grant mortgages to homeowners. Then they can package up hundreds and thousands of these mortgages into a mortgage-backed securities, as I've discussed before, and they can sell it to investors. Investors would then buy it and essentially will get interest payments on the MBS, similar to coupon payments for bonds, for example. We've covered bonds in episode 53. This way, the investor who buys the mortgage-backed securities indirectly, they become the lender, but the key is the investor doesn't know the ins and outs and details of each individual mortgage within that mortgage-backed security. So in other words, a mortgage-backed security might have a thousand different mortgages, but the investor doesn't know the ins and outs of each of those mortgages, mortgages, beg your pardon, so therefore they just invest in the MBS. They kind of don't know the whole story within it. So investors thought they were buying MBSs which were relatively low risk because it was assumed most loans would get repaid. Remember, the economy is doing great and everyone's employed. And the institutional investors included banks from America, some Australian banks, and of course a lot of European banks. 
So in summary, the economy was good. Deregulation played a role. People borrowed money because house prices always went up and the people who borrowed money probably couldn't afford those homes and those mortgages and banks were competing to lend more and more money out. So started lending to people who had poor incomes, uh, poor incomes, beg your pardon, and they didn't do their due diligence and ended up lending money who couldn't repay those mortgages. And of course, banks packaged up these mortgages into investments called mortgage-backed securities and sold it to the investors, which were large banks and institutions and mutual funds, etc., etc. The investors thought it was cool and low risk because they were indirectly now receiving interest payments on thousands of mortgages packaged up as securities. Wow, this is awesome. Money is just being made left, right and centre. What could go wrong? Point two, increased borrowing by the banks and investors. So to add to all this complexity, the scene is now set for awesome returns as discussed just before, right? Everyone's just investing, everything's going great. So the banks and institutional investors got greedy. They wanted in on more of the action. Rather than invest in mortgage-backed securities with money they had, guess what they did? They borrowed money to invest in mortgage-backed securities themselves. This is called leverage. And I've discussed this in detail about the concept of leverage versus margin in episode 49. Go back and listen to it if you haven't already. So essentially, the banks got greedy. When I say the banks, I'm talking about the American banks here. So leverage magnifies your returns, right? So as the markets and the economy is great, unemployment is low, and people are just investing left, right, and center, and banks are just selling these mortgages and packaging them up into MBSs, inflation is at record lows. That's fantastic. So leverage magnifies returns. In an economy that's booming, leverage just makes you more money. This led to point three, regulation and policy problems. Regulations were really non-existent and not monitored. They were too lax. So when the processes discussed before happened over and over and over again, people weren't scrutinising these mortgages. They weren't scrutinising these mortgage-backed securities. They weren't scrutinising the banks that were lending and they weren't scrutinising the banks that were borrowing. These basically just happened and people didn't worry about it because house prices always go up, right? Mortgage-backed securities became more and more complex and more and more opaque and very hard to follow. Then what started happening was fraud started happening, basically outright fraud, where banks lent money to people who didn't exist, dead people, money, uh, sorry, people who had no jobs, no incomes and no prospects financially, and also had introductory interest rates which were low and then skyrocket after a few years which borrowers didn't read the fine print to find out or figure out. I have to say, this didn't happen too much in Australia. We are mainly talking about unscrupulous practices in the United States, which affected the entire world to some extent, but this sort of unscrupulous practices kind of didn't happen in Australia, although the latest Royal Commission may change your mind on that. So essentially, investors were being over-promised on the safety of mortgage-backed securities. And that investor might have been other institutional investors, but that could also be mum-and-pop investors like you and me in index funds. So what happened next? How did the GFC unfold? This, this sort of sets the scene for the GFC, but how did it actually unfold? Lo and behold, the people that actually borrowed money that couldn't afford to borrow money defaulted on their home loans one by one, slowly but surely. 
Why did they default? Because they couldn't afford them in the first place. They had no jobs, no source of income, or the interest rate suddenly skyrocketed after introductory rates. This meant banks incurred losses on failed repayments, and more importantly, investors incurred losses on their mortgage-backed securities. Suddenly, the assets which were backing the securities started to be worthless. House prices declined sharply and very quickly over a period of several months. Since house prices are falling, investors and banks who possessed, uh, sorry, repossessed these homes could not sell them to cover their loans and losses. Remember, investors borrowed money to invest in mortgage-backed securities. Therefore, this meant they defaulted on their loans, called margin loans, and had to sell other assets to cover loans. The cycle was fierce, and then it became a snowball effect, and ultimately, the owners of these properties were kicked out as one by one they got foreclosed on. Now, in Australia, these are called mortgagee auctions on homes. You can actually do searches on mortgagee auctions and try and capitalise on it. See, investors got spooked. As people couldn't pay their home loans, and of course banks repossessed these homes, and there are a lot of homes on the market, supply and demand, homes weren't getting the rates that they would have gotten had they sold if their demand was very high, the house prices started falling, and of course investors got spooked, because investors weren't investing in individual mortgages, they were investing in mortgage-backed securities, now the securities are not being backed by the mortgages because the mortgages are losing value and of course people are not paying them and they're losing interest. Things are getting very complex. So now investors started saying, well, I don't want my MBS. I wanted to sell my existing NBSs, MBS meaning mortgage-backed securities. So this further reduced the value of MBS. And this added to the financial system stress and by now things were spiralling out of control. This spilled over to other countries, not just the US. Remember, foreign banks were actively participating in the American economy and naturally got burned by it all. US banks also operated in other countries, further exposing their losses and affecting economies of other countries, mainly in Europe, Australia, somehow slowly escaped the full wrath of the GSD. Now, we did feel, I mean, the ASX did drop significantly in Australia, but the Americans really felt the heat. The European markets took a heat, and of course, Australia took some of the heat as well. Okay. So basically, the big investment banks who had invested in MBS lost a lot of money, couldn't cover their liabilities, and as a result, failed. They went bankrupt. This eventually tricked a, uh, sorry, triggered a massive panic attack on the stock market. And of course, the rest is history, right? We all know what happened after when the banks went slow, slowly down. Now, I still remember all the chaos in 2008. When Lehman Brothers failed, I was actually watching TV. I was a cardiothoracic resident during my residency, and I was um, covering high-dependency unit overnight. Things were relatively quiet. I had everything under control. When I flicked on the internet and read the news and found out about the collapse of Lehman Brothers. As a young doctor with a relatively high income and little financial knowledge, this was about 11 years ago now, I didn't know the full extent of what is to come. And I've always been an avid saver, but I didn't know what all this meant. So it didn't affect me very much. Much of my investments I've started paying attention to was really since then, but I've always been a good saver. I've always saved money. Um, I may not have invested as early as I probably should have, but I've always saved money. And that's why I tend to talk about systems and processes for personal finances rather than individual cases, because from then on, this got me interested. And that's why... I talk about basic rules and principles of personal finance, which I've used over the last 10 years. Now, as a result of all this, the US and other countries 
fell into a deep recession which has taken a long time to recover. Of course, during all this time, building companies collapsed, which meant job losses, businesses getting bankrupt left, right and centre, which therefore has an impact on people's livelihood, which means they lose their jobs, which means they can't pay mortgages, and therefore the cycle just gets exacerbated each time. So what's been the response to the GFC globally? Well, lower interest rates. Now, you talk about interest rates every month in RBA, sits down and talks about interest rates, and you can read the meeting minutes if you've got, you know, if you're really bored. But essentially, the central banks around the world lowered their interest rates. Why? Because lower interest rates stimulate economic growth. Central banks lent the money back to the same banks, which were dodgy, go figure, and asked them to use it to stimulate their businesses and spend some money in the hope of spurring consumer confidence. Now, in the US, this was a huge, um, you know, I think it was $700 billion that they loaned back onto these big banks and businesses. They kind of screwed them over in the first place, but hey, that's what they do in America, help the big businesses. Governments then decided to purchase ownership stakes in these businesses and banks. Now, note the response mitigated. Now, this response mitigated the event and prevented the global depression rather than just a global recession. Remember, this is the global recession that we're talking about. We're not talking about a global depression. There is a subtle difference. They call the Great Depression between 29 and 39 uh, a Great Depression and not the Great Recession. There was new regulation introduced to regulate the financial sectors and industries to try and prevent this from happening again, which ironically, some of which has already been deregulated by the Trump administration in the US and to some extent the Australian government, who are currently uh, liberal government, which is uh, liberal in Australia are more sort of centre-right, right-wing government, who are very, very pro-business, who are you know all for personal responsibility, etc. So one of the regulations which was introduced was to prevent banks from operating at high leverages, for example. Now, who would have thought that borrowing money is not a good thing? This is what happened, right? Because people just borrowed money, and of course, banks borrowed money to make more money, and of course, when things went haywire, they lost a lot of money, and some of the banks went bankrupt. Now, what about Australia? How did we fare during the GFC? Australia fared very well compared to the rest of the world. We, in fact, did not have a recession at all. Our economy was still riding the mining boom and its after effects. The pace of economic growth did slow. Unemployment rose slightly and uncertainty was a huge issue down under. But overall, we didn't really panic too much. Of course, the markets did deteriorate, but it, it didn't affect us very much. And who could, who could forget Kevin Rudds, who was the prime minister at the time, uh, giving us out handouts. I think it was $900 that I got checks or you know deposited in my bank or whatever and I just basically took the money and invested it and paid off on my mortgage at the time so you know I didn't really spend the money because the whole idea was you get the money and you have to spend it to increase consumer spending uh, and therefore you know prop up businesses sort of artificially which I kind of didn't do but anyway so why did Australia do so well during the GFC well Australian banks had little exposure to the US housing market that's point number one Domestic lending was profitable. We had one of the most expensive housing markets in the world and interest rates were higher here than in the US. So it was a profitable segment for our banks. Also, Aussie banks have one of the high profits in the world. So we're in very profitable banking sector down under. So Australian banks were really focused on the domestic market during that time and probably still are. In Australia, subprime lending wasn't really a major thing. We have the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, 
which has strict regulations and guidelines on lending criteria, so the Oz banks didn't willy-nilly lend money to people who didn't have an income. It's become even more harder to get a loan in recent times due to the Royal Commission. Now, if you apply for a home loan now, you get asked 101 million questions before they even look at your application. So it's extremely difficult right now to get a home loan, even for high-income earners. I've got a lot of high-income earners uh, in my friendship circle. You know, many of them are in the health professional space, and and they 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 sometimes are struggling to get to get home loans or to provide the evidence um, that their income is actually high enough. Um, so it, it's, you know, lending standards are becoming quite tight in Australia. Now, Australia's economic growth was also supported by the huge growth in China. A proximity to China has been a biggest advantage. Their appetite for products and services from Australia was huge. And it just so happened during that time that China was just having a massive construction boom and their net worth of each individual Chinese citizen just went up dramatically. So we were relatively lucky enough to be able to tap into that market and try and prevent this, you know, recession sort of hitting us uh, during the GFC. So when you look at the data, our last proper recession in Australia was actually in the early 90s, 25 plus years ago. So we've had an incredible growth in economic expansion in the history of the world now, the Americans talk about economic expansion over the last 10 years under Barack Obama and now Trump, but really the Australian economy has just grown for the last 25 plus years. I think we're into our 29th economic expansion year. It's just incredible. We are very, very lucky that we've had a significant streak of growth. Now, how long we can get this going, I'm not sure, but we're really one of the you know, record holders in terms of continuous economic expansion in terms of GDP growth. So really, if you were born in the 90s, you kind of have never experienced a recession in Australia, which is pretty scary. It is coming. You know, it has to happen in one's lifetime. But, you know, if you're a 20 year old, uh, you've, you've, just ne- you've just entered the workforce after university or, you know, you've, you've just gone into uni or whatever you just haven't experienced a recession down under, which is an incredible feat when you think about it. So what did the RBA do in Australia? They lowered interest rates, of course, which is what all the major central banks do when there's, uh, you know, troubles of recession and trying to prevent it. Fiscal policy was tightened and people were guaranteed the deposits in their savings account. I think maximum of 250000 per person, also guaranteed bonds issued by the banks. But of course, the more recent Royal Commission has tightened lending standards even further. These are some of the steps that the Australian uh, Prudential Regulation Authority has taken and the RBA has taken as well in order to try and you know, stem, the, you know, stem the risk of recession and try and prevent a GFC happening locally. So then you start thinking about what is a recession, okay? That's when the economy starts shrinking. The definition is basically two quarters of economic shrinking, which is basically negative GDP, which is gross domestic product. But here's the deal. Deregulation, and, and you know, coming back to the original question, why are people so worried about a recession in the next two years or within the next two years, all right? So these are all the things that have happened in the GFC, and now we're coming back to it 10 years after saying... Uh, We're really worried about another GFC, GFC 2.0. So why is that? Because deregulation has escalated in the United States. Australia is far more regulated when it comes to banking and financial sectors. But let's not be blind. Whatever happens in the US indirectly affects Australia and the rest of the world because US is still the largest economy in the world. 
China and Japan and India, all these countries, are catching up, of course. Point number two is trade wars. The US and China are in a battle for trade. They're applying tariffs on each other's products, which is a bit silly, really, because consumers end up paying those tariffs. And all of this talk about the US winning the trade war and the Chinese winning the trade war is a bit of BS. Ultimately, the customers pay the tariffs. The money has to come from somewhere. And sure as hell, businesses are not going to absorb these extra costs. Point number three, business sentiment and investment is also reducing. The US tax cuts, which was happened, you know, passed through last year, was going to spur economic growth. Businesses were going to spend their tax cuts into their businesses. Well, it turns out they just gave it to the shareholders, their CEOs and their executives, and of course they bought more stock of their own company. It didn't really flow on to the citizen. It didn't really flow on to the employee. Point number four, there is little room for more interest rate cuts. Interest rate cuts are designed to spur borrowing, which is then used to invest in businesses to create products and services. But if there's little room to move with interest rates, as rates are already historically low, and in some countries it's actually negative, then there is little leeway to spur economic growth. This is why people are getting worried. Point number five, look at Europe. The German economy is already slowing and they're the first in the European Union to shoulder a recession. Germany is Europe's biggest economy and is an economic powerhouse. Point number six, Brexit, the uncertainty about it all. This thing has been happening for such a long time, but nothing has happened. After Brexit, all the trade deals will need to be renegotiated again and England is one of the biggest economies in Europe. But they can't even get Brexit right. The yield curve, I've talked about it briefly before, point number seven. Historically, before the last seven recessions in the US, that's 60 years of data, the yield curve has inverted. Just briefly, this means that short-term treasury bonds pay a higher rate of return than long-term treasury bonds. In other words, investors get worried about the long-term future and want to hold their money in more secure short-term investments. This is paradoxically not the correct way of thinking, isn't it? Because you want to make more money in the long term, not make less money in the long term. So this a paradoxical way of thinking is usually if you invest for the long term, your overall return should be great. So this is worrying sign for investors and therefore a worrying sign for the economy. The inverted yield curve has not just happened recently. It happened earlier in the U.S., Uh, It also happened in 2018. So the number of times that it happens matters. The more times it happens, the more freaked out people get. So those are the seven points that I'd like to make as to why people are getting worried about a GFC 2.0. What can you do? How can you learn from GFC 1.0 and try and prevent yourself from getting into trouble with GFC 2.0? Now, I'm not a financial advisor, as I've told earlier in this podcast episode, because I don't know your personal financial circumstances. But here's my humble two cents. Point number one, do nothing drastic. Don't sell your stocks. Don't sell all your homes. Just stay calm because after every recession, the market picks up. Keep saving the money. As the motto suggests, save 20% of your after-tax income and make sure you invest and you pay yourself first. Reduce your consumer debt as much as possible. Avoid consumer debt. In fact, reduce all debt as much as possible. If you don't have consumer debt, pay off your mortgage. 
because debt puts you at risk during times of recession and during tough economic times. Keep investing, don't stop investing, and always reinvest dividends, always. And if you're a market timer, which I'm not, but if you're a market timer, sure, keep some spare cash handy, so when the market turns down, start ploughing money in. Have a rainy day fund, an emergency uh, fund. It's absolutely vital during times of distress. If the economy goes down, if you lose your job or something happens health-wise, God forbid, you have that emergency fund to rely on, ideally for 12 months, but at least for three to six months. I've discussed uh, emergency funds as a podcast episode in the past. So go back and listen to these episodes. There are various types of emergency funds that that you can have in your personal finance arsenal, basically. Now, lastly, why keep investing? If we're worried about a market downturn, why keep investing? Why save money? Because it doesn't make sense. Because if the market's going to crash, aren't we going to lose money? Well, there's two things. Firstly, there's dollar cost averaging. Basically, if you invest in a downward market, your average cost of shares or units purchased reduces over time if you invest in a market downturn. You get more units and more shares per unit of money. And point number two, remember, after the market crashing, it usually goes back up again and usually goes back up with a vengeance. It goes up significantly. And remember, when you invest in a downturn, you're still getting dividends. You're going to be reinvesting those dividends which are going to compound over that time. There are more bull markets than there are bear markets. So don't stop investing, in my humble opinion, just for those isolated bear markets. We will have a recession. Australia will have a recession. It's inevitable. But it doesn't mean that we just, you know, become stressed and just do silly things do nothing. Don't do anything drastic. That's about it. This is episode 55. There are a number of lessons to be learned from the GFC 1 and there are a number of mitigating things that you could do to ensure GFC 2 doesn't affect you much. The principles are the same. Spend less than what you earn, save, pay yourself first and invest and reinvest dividends and always automate it for the long term. Long term investing is the key. So if you're a millennial that has never been in a recession, now is the chance to prepare for one and get your finances in order. Now, school holidays are coming up, which means I'm going to take a bit of a break. So I'm not going to be releasing one episode a week, which I've tried to do this year as much as I possibly can. Uh, And I really appreciate the support that all of you have shown me. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off, just chillax a bit, uh, because uh, I think next week is school holidays for some schools in Melbourne. Um, So I'm going to take a couple of weeks off just chilling out with family and friends. And of course, I'll come back after the school holidays. I've got more topics lined up as well. Now, this is Dev Raga, Personal Finance, episode 55. Thank you very much for listening and supporting the channel. And until next time, stay safe. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.